Now, Jesus was brilliant at painting word pictures. You notice that as you read through the Gospels? He was, he was a master at it. He really knew how to put a memorable image into the minds of those who were listening to him. So, for example, he told people not to try and take the speck out of somebody else's eye, you know, just a little bit of dust out of someone else's eye, when they had a wooden beam in their own, you know? It's a, it's a memorable image, isn't it? Have you ever tried to picture that? Obviously, somebody has tried to picture that, what that would look like, to have a great big log in your own eye, and you're trying to take out, you know, help somebody who's got a bit of a squint with something in theirs. Also, he, he likened trying to reason with somebody who won't listen to you, and you know they're not listening, to being like throwing precious pearls in front of pigs. You know, you take your best jewellery and just throw them before the pigs, you know, for the entertainment of the pigs. It, you know, completely pointless, isn't it? But one of his most powerful and sinister pictures, I think, is this. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets, false preachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. We know that. We know that picture, don't we? To be a wolf in sheep's clothing came from Jesus. Imagine it, though. Imagine that picture. It's a scarring image, isn't it, when you picture that in your mind's eye. A lovely flock of sheep with the little lambs, and they're skipping about in the field, and they're munching the grass without a care in the world. And there's this enormous wolf, and he's got himself all wrapped up in the skin from a sheep that he's already devoured. He's hidden the bones away. He's had to pick a nice fat sheep, hasn't he, so he can get that skin around him. And he's stalking the sheep in their own field, whilst they are completely oblivious. He can creep up behind them and sink his teeth into one of them and get a delicious meal. It's, it's a hideous image, actually, isn't it? Paul was evidently quite familiar with that image when we look at the passage we had read to us. He uses it in verse 28, if you want to have a look. He says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, day and night, with tears. It's a big deal for Paul, isn't it? Now, these are, these are words that Paul spoke to the elders, the overseers of the thriving strategic church in Ephesus. We've learned a bit about that over the last couple of weeks. This wonderful church that's spreading throughout the whole province. And just to catch you up on his travelogue, we had it read to us, Paul has left Troas. Remember, that's the city where the, the young man, Eutychus, fell asleep while Paul was preaching, tumbled out of a window, uh, and there had to be a, a miracle of resurrection so that this young man could then go back up again and listen to the rest of the sermon. Amazing, isn't it? Now, Paul has left Troas, um, and he has travelled down the western coast of Turkey. That's where we are. He's bypassed Ephesus, and he's landed at a port called Miletus. That's where this incident happens. Luke tells us that 
that Paul is anxious to get back to Jerusalem for, for Pentecost. And so he doesn't want to be waylaid in the province of Asia. I mean, you know what it's like. You know, after a service, you know what Christians can be like. You know, once they all get together and are being friendly and they start talking. I mean, some of the young people here will just know how long it can take to get out of a Christian community and, and get, get moving again. You know, so it's, you've got to bypass these things, says Paul. It's like, it's like me trying to bypass the coffee table so I don't get waylaid because I want to get home because I've got something important happening. And so to help him with this, he sends for the elders from the church in Ephesus to come to him. And they journey south to join him. And it's an interesting meeting, and that's what we've got really recorded here for us. At the end of the chapter, if you look down, you'll see that this was a really emotional visit. There's much sorrow. Paul tells them they're not going to see him again. It's a tearful farewell. And those verses, those verses we read about those savage wolves, verses 28 to 31, they tell us what it was that was Paul's chief concern for the churches in this whole area that he's been so instrumental in planting and nurturing. And you remember last time, if you were here, we looked at what it was that made these churches churches throughout Greece and Macedonia and the province of Asia, what made them so fruitful and mature and generous? What a wonderful group of churches. And it was, you remember, that they kept the word of God. They kept the things taught and passed on by the apostles, the word of Jesus, right at the heart of all that they did. They loved the word of God. Why? Not just because they love books and words, but they loved the word of God because that was the word that revealed to them Jesus and showed them how to have eternal life, have abundant life in him. And in this second half then of chapter 20, I think Luke actually here is getting even more specific. What was it actually specifically in the ministry of God's word that was really most central. Or to put it the way that Paul does in those verses I just, just reminded you of, what was the particular truth that these wolves would want to come in and try to distort, to twist, to change? That's what we're looking at this morning. So let's take a look at what Paul says here in the second half of chapter 20 about what it was that he so fervently preached to these freshly established churches. Here is Paul, his parting words to the elders, in whose hands, humanly speaking, he's leaving these precious churches that he loves so much. And first, we get a sense of the importance of what he preached. Look at verse 20 with me. He tells them, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. It gives you a sense, again, doesn't it, of the kind of activity that Paul put his effort into. What was it that Paul was all about? No surprises here. Preaching and teaching. That's what God had charged him to do. And he did it wherever and whenever he could. He did it in public settings, synagogues, marketplaces, he rented the lecture hall in the, in the city so he could fill it with people to hear God's word. And he says here also he's going from home to home. 
sitting down with smaller groups, like the Eutychus incident in uh, uh, wherever that was. <laughs> He's going from house to house. You know, I'm in awe of men. I, I wonder if you are. Uh, men of the past who've had an, a massive capacity for doing this. It is quite something, isn't it? Apparently, John Calvin, the great reformer in Geneva, he preached, and every time he preached, he preached for at least an hour, but he would do that twice on a Sunday, and then every morning of the week for alternating weeks. That's a lot of preaching, and if you didn't turn up for that, I mean, you could get into trouble in Geneva. Or the great Victorian preacher, my hero, Charles Spurgeon, he preached between four to ten times a week, on an average week, somewhere between those, and that was a feat that this man managed whilst also, generally speaking, every week, reading six meaty books, revising sermons for publication, lecturing students, and editing a monthly magazine. Oh, and in his spare time, he managed to write 150 books. That's quite something, isn't it? But those ministers, ministers like this, like Paul, like, like these men, they believed in the priority and in the power of preaching God's word. They knew that it was important because without it, there would be no progress. There would be no maturing of believers, no progress amongst God's people. But they also knew, along with Paul, that faithful preaching is not just a matter of maturing people. It is also a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. Take a look at verse 26. Very interesting what Paul says here. He says, therefore, I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Imagine a, a messenger, okay? And he's sent to a city to warn that there's a powerful, deadly army approaching the city. They're coming to attack and take the city and burn it down. Now, what if that messenger should get distracted? You know, not think the message is important enough and just get distracted and, you know, see something, something else he wants to do and just say, oh, I'll stop off at McDonald's or something and, you know, and have a burger or something. What if he should get distracted? Or what if he should fail to pass that message on? You know, properly, with, with the right gravity. Imagine, if, in order to not upset the people, because, you know, it's a pretty frightening message, isn't it? Instead, he just said, oh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a few people, you know, one or two people, a bit angry. Uh, they're coming towards the city. You, you might want to look out for them. Just a small raiding party. You know, that messenger would rightly bear the guilt of every life lost in the city, wouldn't he? A city that wasn't adequately prepared because he's failed in his task. That's kind of what Paul's saying here, isn't it? He felt the responsibility, if you look at those verses, of the task he had been given. Should he fail to pass on faithfully everything in the message that God had given him, to pass it on faithfully and accurately, lives would be in jeopardy. And the blood of those he had failed would be on his head, wouldn't it? If he were to tone down the message of the gospel, if he was to try and take some, all the offence out of it, anything that might upset anyone, 
all that talk of, of sin, of judgment, of a saviour dying on a cross, if you were to take away those, those elements, then the message he would be left with would be no gospel at all, would it? It wouldn't be good news. It would have no power to save. It would instead leave men and women and children lost and helpless and hopeless and still in their sin. People won't come to a saviour if they've got no idea they need saving. Why would they react at all? And finally, it was important because it was a task given to Paul by the Lord Jesus himself. Look, first, look at verse 24. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I mean, actually, you know what? Look at, the, look at what Paul is saying there while those words are on the screen. That is quite something, isn't it? I mean, I pray that we will follow the same convictions that Paul does here as a church. He was convinced that if the Lord Jesus had given him a task, then nothing else in this life mattered more. And if that same Lord Jesus has said to you and me, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. If that's the task that he has given to you and me, then to use your life to do those things means a life spent well. It means a race well run. That's the importance of what Paul preached. But secondly, note, note the content of what he preached. What, what actually is this that he preached? Look again at the verses that we've read. Verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach you anything that would be helpful to you. I've taught you publicly from house to house. Verse 26, look. Therefore I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul made it his goal to teach, verse 20, anything that would be helpful to these believers, which turns out in verse 27 to be the whole will of God. Do you see, putting those two things together? Everything, all of God's purposes as they are revealed in the whole body, the whole of this book from cover to cover. It brings to mind those well-known verses that, that we, we tend to try and memorise, don't we, in 2 Timothy 3. Similar expression, actually. All scripture, says Paul, is God-breathed. It all finds its source in, in God and is useful, he says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul's conviction is clearly that all of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole of it cover to cover, is helpful and is useful to us. In fact, we are handicapped without them as Christians. We're disadvantaged if we don't go to them all. We need to learn from the whole word of God. We really must never play pick and mix with the Bible. I mean, God forbid that we go down that road. You like, do you like pick and mix? My kid's crazy about pick and mix. You, know, you get your little pick and mix cup. And go to the Bible. And there it is. What are we going to put in here? Put a load of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in there. Because we like those. 
and maybe a few chunks of Paul's letters, put them into the cup, and perhaps a tastier, you know, a sprinkling of, of psalms just to fill in the gaps around it. You know, the ones that are easier to swallow, and then we try and jam the lid on it. We don't want any of those sticky books like Leviticus or Isaiah or Revelation. You know, we might choke on those. We've got to share Paul's conviction that all Scripture, if we listen to it, if we allow God to speak through it, will teach us and correct us and train us in righteousness. I mean, I don't know what Tiago's favourite pick and mix sweets are, but just imagine that, that Tiago or I did this. And we just decided, you know, I'm, 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 all I want to preach is just my favourite book of the Bible. There are so many difficult things we would never teach, we would never prepare you through. We would not be preparing you for every good work. So we've seen the importance of what Paul preached, a task given to him by the Lord Jesus. And we've seen kind of what, what that consisted of. It's content. It's the whole will of God, isn't it? It's everything in the Bible. But thirdly, note actually more specifically the message that Paul is preaching. This is interesting. Because what is the constant drumbeat, the consistent message that runs throughout the whole word of God? Because there is one, one message. You know, uh, do, do, you, um, do they still make sticks of rock with the words that go all the way through it? Because I have never understood how they do that. Do you know how they do that? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? But if the whole of Scripture, if the whole Bible was a stick of rock, what would be the message that ran right through that stick of rock? From beginning to end, it's the gospel. The gospel just basically means good news. It's the message of how God redeems and saves sinners. That's what runs right through the story of the Bible. The Bible's... Not a book that concerns only the nation of Israel. It's not just a Jewish book. It's a book that concerns the salvation of all mankind. You and me, the entire human race. I mean, look at what Paul says in verse 21. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. It didn't matter who was in front of him. What does he declare? That they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the message. It doesn't matter who you are, the gospel is the same. The call is the same. And Paul says here, it's, first of all, it's a gospel about repentance and faith. It's about turning this message. That's what repentance means. If you were here a few weeks ago, I reminded us by putting up these posters on either side of the stage. Do you remember? One saying sin on it over here and the other one saying Jesus on it over there. And I explained that repentance basically means to make a 180 degree turn, to go the opposite direction. You're heading in the direction of sin, following the sinful desires of your heart, walking in disobedience to God's word. And when you do that, you've got your back to Jesus. He doesn't matter. He means nothing to you. You don't want him. But when you make that 180 degree turn, when you become aware of your sin, 
desperate to do something about it, deciding that you must turn from it. When you do that, now you are facing Jesus. And when you come to Jesus for rescue and for deliverance, well, that is what it means when Paul says here to have faith in our Lord Jesus. Because in the act of true repentance, turning, there is both a turning from sin and a turning to Jesus, the Saviour. You can't do the one without the other. And that is the gospel. It is to make that turn. The gospel is good news. It is the good news that though your sins are like a scarlet stain on your life, which you cannot do anything about, which you cannot wash away, Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. He shed his blood to wash you white as snow. That's the gospel. It's a message of how you can be cleansed and forgiven, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We sang it, didn't we, earlier? How can God do that? Well, verse 24, Paul has given his life to telling people how it's the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's a message about grace. Grace is another word that sums up the good news. It means to receive that which you do not deserve in any way, shape or form. You have no right to it. But grace is that you receive it. It's given. God gives salvation, rescue to sinners without cost. It is a gift received simply by faith, by trusting Jesus, by taking him at his word of promise. He says, come to me, I will rescue you. And you come to him and trust that promise. God's salvation, though, might be freely given to sinners, but it is infinitely costly. It's the most precious thing. Jesus Christ had to pay for our sins. He had to give his life so that our debts could be paid and cancelled. It was costly to him. Because our punishment had to fall on someone. If it didn't, then, I mean, what does that say about the justice of God? To just pardon indiscriminately. A judge that did that wouldn't be just. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. It is what we deserve. Someone had to die so that that justice would be satisfied. And Jesus voluntarily took the place of sinners. So how must I respond to that offer? Well, Paul says in verse 25 that he's gone about preaching the kingdom. I mean, the key's in there. The gospel, you see, is good news about a kingdom. All through the Bible, we see this theme of there being two kingdoms in the world. Essentially, there's, well, there's basically the kingdom of this world and all this world stands for. And there's the kingdom of God. And everyone is in either one or the other of those kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, we live in it, really. It's all around us. It's fading away. It is perishing. It's a kingdom of darkness and decay. It's not getting better. The hearts of men are not getting better. It's a kingdom that's coming to an end and that one day will be wrapped up and destroyed along with all of its inhabitants. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is an everlasting kingdom. It is a kingdom full of life and light. It is a kingdom that has been growing. Jesus said it's like a tiny mustard seed. It just starts small. But one day it will become great and dominate and fill the earth. And it's a kingdom 
with a glorious, good and just king, one who will reign forever and never die. Listen to how Paul wrote about this to the church in Colossae. He said, God has rescued us from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The gospel calls everyone. If you are not in God's kingdom, if you have not put your trust in Jesus, I'm calling you this morning. Come to him for salvation. You have heard the call. Jew, Gentile, men, women, children. It's the same call. Leave this life of sin. Turn to Jesus for rescue. Receive God's gracious offer of salvation by trusting his word. And leave this kingdom of darkness for the eternal security, the hope that is found only under the rule of God's King, Jesus. But it's also a gospel, finally, that is under threat. Let's return to those verses that we started with as we, as we finish up and look at the distortion of what Paul preached. Let me read it to you again from verse 28. He says, keep watch, he says to the elders, over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Full of warnings, this passage, isn't it? Clearly, Paul's aim was that this true gospel would be passed on completely and accurately to all of the churches so that they, in turn, would then pass that baton on to the next generation and so on and so forth, all the way down to us. Now, many of you here in this room, you love that gospel. You know that gospel. And you can't imagine, I mean, you, you daren't imagine how any true church could lose that wonderful message. How does that happen? But Paul knows the hearts of men. The faithful, true church will always treasure the gospel. They'll protect it. But amongst the flock, Paul knows there are wolves. We don't know who they are because we can't see people's hearts. I don't know which of you is genuine or fake. I can only look at what you do and what you say. But Paul is aware there are some. There will be some deceptive. Those who are not sheep. But they're amongst the sheep. They are false. They are fake. They believe a different gospel. A gospel that is actually not good news once you look at it closely. And so he says to them, keep watch, verse 28. He says to them, be on your guard, verse 31. We must be constantly on the lookout for distortions, for things that are tampering with that message. It is so important. It's one of the most important jobs that an elder of the church, an overseer in the church can do. So Dickie, Mick, Tony, Tiago, listen up. This is serious, isn't it? Paul says here, this is a precious church. 
It cost the blood of the Son of God. That's what it says in verse 28. Any tampering with the truth of the gospel will have a devastating effect on the church. And there are those who will knock on your door and try to convince you that Jesus Christ is not actually the divine son of God. Oh, he's just some other created being. There are some that will want to say, yes, you know, we are saved by faith through God's grace. But we must now maintain that salvation by doing good and holy works, lest we lose it. Someone to say that, well, yes, Christ died on the cross, but not to pay for our sins, as if God would punish an innocent victim. Instead, you know, Jesus just died as an example for us to follow, an example of sacrifice. There are some that say God is too loving to send anyone to hell. That in the end, you know what? His love will just win over all sinners. All sin will just be swept under the carpet. There are those who will seek to add all manner of things to the gospel. And there are some who want to take away from it, water it down, soften it. So how will we stand firm? How will we be aware? How will we protect ourselves? Well, first of all, we stand firm, we protect ourselves by the elders of the church jolly well doing their job. Rebuking, removing, correcting getting rid of wolves from the flock, exposing the false messages that try to come in. But more importantly, secondly, we will stand firm by proclaiming the gospel. It's actually quite a simple thing, isn't it? You know, they, say, they often say that, you know, people who uh, deal with trying to find counterfeit money, you know, they, they look at the genuine article. They don't collect all of the false counterfeit money and look at that. No, instead they look at the genuine money and they study it and they study it and study it so hard that if they see anything different from it, oh, they'll know straight away because they've spent so much time studying the genuine thing. If you study the genuine, you won't be taken in by the false. We stand firm. We protect ourselves from any gospel distortion, by teaching the whole will of God, by showing that wonderful good news is from cover to cover in our Bible and proclaiming it over and over, that wonderful, glorious message of salvation, to show it from every angle and facet so that its truth is displayed and, 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 and put on display to all of us. A church that is a safe place to be, a safe place for sheep, to belong and to feed is a church that never tires of the gospel, never tires of saying, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be in any time of trouble a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear and when life's bright glory is dawning on my soul. Tell me the old, old story Christ Jesus makes me whole.